Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce James Haas. He is a local historian, and he is the author of the San Francisco Civic Center. He is an author, attorney, and expert on the center and its history and politics. He's lived in San Francisco most of his life and spent more than 40 years engaged in civic projects, including the restoration and completion of San Francisco's Civic Center. He's also from a very long line of San Franciscans. Not too many people in the room are going to be able to say that. So thanks a lot for coming, Jim, and uh, we really appreciate your bringing that history to us. Well, it's a great honor to be here on this very prestigious forum, and I hope my little humble effort will be of interest to you all. I uh, What I want to do is um, talk about, I mean, there's lots of stories in this book, and I could be here for three and a, four hours without even reading parts of it, but uh, what I want to do is highlight three particular themes and, um, and give you um, some idea of the past, the present, and the future of our Civic Center. But before I do that, um, I'm told that when you're doing a book, you have to have a reading. So I'm, I have two paragraphs or three paragraphs here I will read for you. In, in my more than 30 years' experience advocating for the completing and improving of Civic Center, I've absorbed its magnificent ambitions and have dealt with the stark reality associated with trying to convince people to support its historic, this historic landmark. City officials and the public have frequently shown a lack of interest and even indifference to the area and its history, and that pains me. Their reluctance to invest in revitalizing the center as a whole, despite attention paid to particular buildings such as City Hall and the Opera House, has been unfortunate, especially considering the extraordinary prominence that Civic Center has within the San Francisco urban design and and architectural history. Um, I've had a long passion for public affairs and history. Um, It never occurred to me um, that I would devote more than half of my adult life to the restoration, completion, and enhancement of the nation's most magnificent municipal architectural treasure, the San Francisco Civic Center. It has long been and it has been a long and often frustrating and humbling experience. After so many years of, of this work, I am proud of the success that has been achieved to date. I hope this book will help people understand the architectural and social philosophies behind that inspired the Civic Center's great building design and the reasons behind uh, their construction. I also hope people will be inspired to appreciate more fully the idea that Civic Center as a whole is more important than its individual buildings. I also wish to stimulate greater appreciation of its incredible monumental of the incredible monumental Civic area so that people will feel it belongs to them and will want to spend more time enjoying it in the future. I'm happy to herewith share the story with you, with you uh, people of San Francisco and everyone who loves this vibrant city. So that's my stilted reading. Uh, The first item I want to talk about is what is a civic center? Um, It is not just a descriptive term. Um, And very few people have any idea where it came from. So we go back um, to the beginning of the 20th century, and we go back to a time of reform and progressivism. Uh, We start with Frederick Law Olmsted, the great builder of parks, who built, uh, created, and designed Central Park, and then Prospect Park in Brooklyn. He became famous, and people asked him to build uh, and design parks all around the country. And in fact, um, Stanford's asked Olmsted to come and design uh, the campus for Stanford. So the idea was brought forward that cities should have parks, they're the lungs of a city, and that many cities, including many modern, you know, newer cities like Kansas City and uh, Seattle, um, hired Olmsted and others to do parkways and parks and so forth. The, uh, the singular thing that got things started was the World's Columbian Exhibition of 1893. 
Um, this was to celebrate Columbus's exploration or or discovery of America, if you will. And um, the the businessmen in Chicago um, competed vigorously to win uh, the competition uh, to hold the fair. And they asked Olmsted, who had actually worked um, on a park project that failed in Chicago, to come and design the park. And then they recruited um, a local architect, Daniel Hudson Burnham, to design the park. And, I mean, to design the fair. And uh, the uh, result was quite astonishing to the public. Uh, This is um, a portion of it. That area is called the Court of Honor. Um, and I won't go into all the details of how it got designed and built, but one-third of the public in the United States saw this. And uh, cities at that time were really, you know, quite uh, poorly designed, and there was problems of, um, you know, stuff in the street from horses and whatnot. So they saw a planned city where all the sanitation and everything was taken care of. This was, you know, Edison installed the whole lighting system. Um, and they, uh, and then you had this grand architecture. The architects um, who Burnham recruited, including the prominent ones from New York, all agreed that, that this should be a neoclassical design um, set of buildings um, and that they should have a uniform height and they ended up should be white. So that's it's also known as the as the White City, and you may have uh, run across the novel that, um, that talks about that. And here's another picture. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Now, all this was made out of plaster and chicken wire, so it disappeared um, uh, shortly after the fair uh, exhibition closed. Although the uh, the Field Museum, which is still in existence, was built out of a solid material. Um, unfortunately, in the middle of the exhibition, uh, the, the country had a, pan- a financial panic, and it was in a serious depression for um, another five years. So what people saw there didn't really cause much to happen elsewhere until prosperity returned. And uh, that happened about uh, the turn of the century, about the time that Teddy Roosevelt became president. And... Um, the American Institute of Architects met in in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the 100th anniversary of uh, the uh, L'Enfant Plan in, um, in, uh, in Washington and uh, um, felt that, that the city had neglected it because in the mall you had a railroad station, a stockyard, various factories and other things. And so they went to a very powerful senator, Senator McMillan from Michigan, and talked him into um, uh, getting the Congress to support uh, a new plan. And uh, a committee of architects was recruited to develop this plan, which was chaired by Daniel Hudson Burnham from Chicago, and included several other very prominent people. And when that plan was published, it really resonated among all sorts of people around the country, because this was like the first time there was a big plan that people could see. Architectural critics and others made a lot of comments about it. And a group of um, architects and citizens from Cleveland had gone to the Chicago Fair and came back to Cleveland with the notion that they should do something special in Cleveland. And they had the money to, from the federal government to build a courthouse and also to build a public library. And they um, had a, re, uh, a, um, a reformist mayor, and he got state legislation to help build this. And they called it the Cleveland Group Plan. You can see that there. This is from an old Harper's Magazine article. And um, they brought in a number of prominent people to help do, to do the plan, and who was the chairman of the committee, but Daniel Hudson Burnham. Uh, but this gave people an idea of what you might have in a city. And that stimulated uh, a lot of articles, a lot of press. Um, there was a, a fellow named Charles Mulford Robinson who um, wrote for magazines. He wrote a book on how to uh, design a city, and he called for <clears throat> what was then called, uh, they'd grown out of the group plan, a civic center, where um, the public buildings would be uh, situated around a plaza, they would be built in a grand style, 
Um, and uh, this would be at the heart of the city. Now, what they had in mind, and this is sort of a building community from the top down, um, what these people had in mind was that by giving the public palatial buildings, which they were invited to be in all the time, just think of all the people who go to City Hall to get married, uh, that it would help bind the community together, that, of course, in those times you had a lot of immigrants and a lot of poor people, um, that it would give them a sense of solidarity. You would add museums and uh, concert halls and libraries and whatnot to give the public a bit of uplift. And uh, so that was the, the concept, because in Cleveland you had the library, the courthouse, various other things. And so that is the nature of a civic center. That concept has gotten lost. Uh, there are people who think the city hall was built, and then they built these other buildings around it, and that's the way it was. But that is totally wrong, and you need to think of it, our civic center, uh, whether you think it's a kind of quaint idea or a really good idea, it was designed to build a community, build community, and bring the public more into the, the public life of the city. So the next topic is... How did we get a civic center? And all of you know we had an earthquake in 1906. Um, the city fathers before then uh, spent 30 years building a mammoth city hall. Um, it uh, had eight different architects. It had a variety of styles imposed on it after the first one was chosen. And um, it wasn't really finished until 1900. So in 1906, the earthquake came and uh, the steel superstructure stayed up, but all the stone cladding fell off. Uh, the, the myth is that the building suffered from uh, graft and corruption over the years, but no one was ever indicted. Uh, there was never any record to show that that kind of criminal activity was involved in the building of the building and, and caused what happened. Um, actually, uh, the reports that came out at the time showed that the building was supervised by amateurs. They didn't have a coherent plan. They kept changing architects, et cetera, et cetera. I would submit that that's not that different from maybe the problems we have with the transit center today. It's not unusual to have that happen. Anyway, um, the private parties in the city immediately started rebuilding. But shortly after the earthquake, as some of you know, in San Francisco, the, the mayor, 16 of the 18 supervisors, and the police chief were all indicted for graft and corruption. They were selling franchises to utilities. So somebody wanted to extend a streetcar line uh, you, know, you have to pay for a franchise. Well, some of that money got diverted into the political operation. And that graft trial, because not only were you uh, indicting the politicians, but you were indicting, you were trying to, they were trying to indict the people who put up the money, who ran the, um, the utilities. These were, you know, people at the top of the social ladder. So for four or five years, uh, the trial went on. There was all this dissension among various p parties, and there really wasn't any coherence within the city to deal with the civic needs such as a new city hall. Now, how we overcame that was uh, a sort of remarkable thing. The, just like in Chicago, the businessmen in San Francisco uh, wanted to get... Uh, a world's exhibition to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal. And they uh, waged a vigorous campaign against primarily New Orleans, and they succeeded in convincing the Congress uh, to give them that opportunity. And that um, occurred in February of 1911. So um, uh, when um, President Taft signed the legislation, uh, the locals were confronted with they had four years to not only to build the exhibition, but to clean up the city. And um, so they immediately got together. The business community um, felt that the, the, the incumbent mayor, whose name was Patrick Henry McCarthy, also known as Pinhead McCarthy, who was head of the Building Trades Council, 
um, was not the man up to running the city to take care of all the needs that were needed to be done. Um, he had succeeded in getting elected because he said he would solve the problems that the graft trials had had uh, caused, um, but um, he couldn't get the uh, anything built, and so they looked around uh, and the, for a committee or for someone that they could run for mayor who they had confidence in, and so they looked to one of their colleagues, a man named James Rolfe, who was the vice president of the. Um, the, they created a company to run the exhibition, the Panama Pacific International Exhibition Company, and he was the vice president. He was also a successful ship owner and banker. He lived in the mission. Um, he had been head of the um, relief efforts after the earthquake in the mission. He had very good relations, particularly with the maritime unions. And he turned out to be this very ebullient individual who really was just had a knack for being a campaigner. So um, he ran, and within um, a few weeks, they had committees all over the city, and many of the prominent labor leaders you know, did not support their guy and supported Rolf. And lo and behold, in September of 1911, there was a primary. There was supposed to be a general election in November, Rolf won more than 50% of the primary, so he was the mayor-elect. Um, he had three major tasks, and those were in his platform, building a new civic center, and a city hall and civic center. He said civic center. He knew what that meant because this talk about civic centers around the country. I didn't mention that 72 cities took an interest in buildings or looking at civic centers and created plans. So this was something that had been talked around um, quite extensively around the country. And uh, then he needed to um, upgrade the... By this time, the, the voters had passed a bond issue to create a municipal railroad up Geary Street, but it hadn't been completed. So he needed to uh, work on transportation, expand the muni, and then the third was a bigger issue, which had been around for a long time, which is to secure the city's water system. Those were the three... Things. So within a few weeks of being mayor-elect, he started work on trying to get over all the controversies and disagreements that had been hanging around on um, not only in the city in general, but on how, uh, what to do with the old city hall and how to build a new civic center. So um, he uh, called upon this gentleman, whose name is John Galen Howard. And Howard... Uh, was probably the most prominent architect on the West Coast at the time. He um, was um, educated by, not only at MIT. Uh, in the 19th century, there really weren't architecture departments. You went and studied civil engineers and so forth. And then he, um, he, went to, he worked for the prominent New York firm of uh, McKen, White, and Mead, McKen, Mead, and White. And then he went to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, which was the leading place for um, training of architects at the end of the, 20th, of the 19th century. And he came back to New York and um, started a practice. He was involved in designing uh, the World's Fair um, in Buffalo in 1901, where President McKinley got shot. No connection there at all. Um, the, uh, um, he came to Berkeley through the efforts of Mrs. George Hurst, uh, William Randolph Hearst's mother, that some of you may know was a great patron of the University of California. And she felt that they needed to have a, uh, a campus plan. Uh, so um, she asked Bernard Maybrecht to organize a competition to choose people. That went on. Um, it took a while, and they chose a Frenchman, um, Emile Bernard, who... Um, uh, didn't get along with Mrs. Hurst, didn't want to come to Berkeley and you know design it there, and so she fired him. Since she paid paying the bills, she could do what she wanted, and uh, she had gotten uh, to to like Howard because she had had um, engaged him to build a the mining building after her husband on the Berkeley campus. Uh, so even though he was fourth on the competition list, she asked him to come to Berkeley to design or to oversee the campus plan and be a professor of architecture. 
Um, and uh, she was a great patron of both the planning and the architecture school. And so he was he was the kingpin at Berkeley. He had a private practice as well. And um, so Rolf called upon him to be his chief advisor on how to design Civic Center uh, and, the, and the City Hall. And um, so Rolf was inaugurated. Uh, that first picture I... So here's Rolf being uh, sworn in. Um, Mr. McCarthy is on the far side. Rolf is the tall guy. Uh, this I'm not certain where it was because um, they didn't have a city hall at that moment, but um, Rolf is being sworn in as, as mayor. He was sworn in on January 9th, and by January 15th, they had an agreement on where things were going, and then Howard prepared this plan um, to show the, um, the public and they agreed to have an election in March, on March 23rd, to, for an $8, billion, $8 million bond issue to buy the property necessary and to build a city hall. So here's um, his plan. Um, the lower half of the, uh, of the plan uh, is the property where the old city hall um, resided the one I showed you that collapsed. They had a, a, a very large piece of, of property that went up market over Larkin, down McAllister, and back to market. Uh, there was some talk about why uh, putting the city hall there, but uh, Howard and his colleagues, because by this time uh, Mayor Rolf had um, created a little committee that consisted of Howard, Rolf's son-in-law, uh, uh, brother-in-law, um, John Reed, who was an accomplished architect and had studied at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and had, was a student of Howard's. And when he announced to the Board of Supervisors and the public that he wanted to have uh, Reed as on this committee, he said to people, he's my brother-in-law. Does anyone have any problem? <laughs> Nobody said anything. I mean, transparency helps. And then a, a distinguished you know, local architect um, named um, Frederick Meyer. Uh, they concluded that rather than having the city hall where the old city hall was, which would face into market, so the front door of city hall would face into the market, the back door would would face into the plaza, that they would flip it and put it where it is now. So the, the main door of city hall faces into the plaza. They also had reasons about the strength of the soil. They thought that putting the city hall there might shelter the plaza from the wind, and we know that you know, that doesn't work that well. But it, anyway, um, they proposed that. They um, uh, went to the ballot, and Rolf, you know, had been elected um, just a few months before, so his whole campaign apparatus was still in place, and they rushed around the city um, campaigning um, for the bond issue. And an interesting thing that happened was that in the fall of 1911, in that election, the voters of California... Um, uh, agreed that women could vote. Actually, actually, the voters in San Francisco voted against it, but the state voted to allow women to vote. And the suffragettes in San Francisco wanted to show that women were serious about participating in civic life. So they went out and organized a lot of women to vote, and they all voted for the bond issue. So when the bond election was done the victory was 92%. 92% of the public voted in favor of the Civic Center and the bonds to build the City Hall. I mean, that's extraordinary in itself. It shows confidence not only in Rolf, but this notion of having a Civic Center was not controversial. People thought, oh, yeah, of course we need a Civic Center. So um, in March, they passed the bond issue, and then in, they had a competition for the design of City Hall, they invited, um, they, they, they had a rule that everyone who practiced architecture in San Francisco on January 1st, 1912, could participate in the competition. This is not an international competition. It wasn't even a California competition. But in spite of that restriction, some almost 100 different architects and firms submitted designs, and architects that you've heard of all participated. And... Um, 
Howard and his colleagues had a committee. They brought in a, the head of the AI from Washington. They went through all the plans. They reduced them to a, a handful because uh, they were going to give a prize for the best, the second, and the third. And they chose this design. One of the um, requirements of the design was that there had to be a, um, a design feature. And uh, so you could build a, you know, a tall office building or a, whatever, a dome. And um, this plan, of course, had the dome. Um, so it was a four-story building, uh, covered the two blocks, and it would have a distinctive design feature. Um, this plan was viewed after it was revealed by everyone as extraordinarily good. Um, it was designed by Arthur Brown Jr. and his and his partners. Brown um, was the son of the uh, chief engineer of the Central Pacific Railroad. Um, his father designed bridges, railroad stations, hotels. So he grew up in an environment where all of this was, you know, natural for him. And uh, he went to Berkeley, um, studied within the engineering department, and um, also Bernard Maybach had a, a, a kind of Saturday session on architecture that a lot of people went to. And then um, he went to the École de Beaux-Arts, partly because Mrs. Hurst, uh, had set up a, she would give a stipend to the best students at Berkeley who wanted to go to become architects and were willing to go to Paris. So every year, two or three people would get a stipend to go, and she was, uh, he was one of them. At the same time he was in Paris, Julia Morgan was there under a stipend from Mrs. Hurst, and um, a number of prominent architects um, from San Francisco were beneficiaries before and after of her generosity. Uh, he was, uh, Brown was considered the most brilliant American student at the Ecole, uh, maybe of all times, and he stayed much longer than normal, and they gave him all these awards. And, um, and then he came back to San Francisco and um, um, set up a practice. Um, there was some work, um, including the Berkeley City Hall, but um, when this competition was uh, out, uh, the story is the office wasn't very busy, and the reason that the design was so extraordinary was they didn't have much else to do. <laughs> and that's true. And um, so uh, they have the architecture team and the general design by um, July and August of uh, 1912. And then um, Howard... Um, publishes in early 1913 uh, a, a design of the Civic Center with the buildings in it. And um, so you can see the, uh, the city hall is in there. Um, there's a plaza in the front. There are two buildings to the north. One is for the public library. The other is for an opera house. There's also... Um, talk at this time of the state building being building state building a building and on the um, south side um, the exhibition company um, agreed to build an auditorium because they expected a lot of um, conventions would come to San Francisco in 1915 the AMA the American Medical Association all those people and they needed a hall to have those conventions because they didn't want them there wasn't any place in the um, in the exhibition where you could hold those kinds of people. So they put up the three-quarters of a million or whatever to build that um, auditorium. So this was published in, in, in 1913 and gave everybody a sense of what they're doing. I won't get into the subject matter of the um, opera house because it, it, it's a long, controversial thing. Needless to say, it didn't get built. Some of you recall that block ended up being an empty lot for 80 years. And at, some, at one point, the planning office, the planning department had, a fun, had an office in a funny little sort of Art Nouveau building or, uh, on the property. That's all in the book. It's also in the book tells you all about how the War Memorial got built. And that was one of those issues where it might never have gotten built um, with all the controversies that were around. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So, um, Rolf did not succeed in getting City Hall open when um, the fair opened. The fair opened in February of 1915. Um, The building was coming along really nicely, but in June, the stonemasons went on strike. So it stopped construction. And um, they didn't start again until November. And Rolf did have a kind of ceremonial opening of City Hall on December 31st. They had a big ceremony, and they opened the door. But it really wasn't really functional until afterwards. And in fact, the Board of Supervisors didn't first meet in the building until um, October of 1916. But, you know, everyone knew what was going on. The people who came to the exhibition could see the construction work. The library had begun construction um, and uh, so forth. So Rolf was mayor for until 1931. He served for five terms. And he uh, always was an enthusiast about City Hall and Civic Center. So in the 20s, he was out crusading for various things to improve Civic Center. Um, He got a health department building built. Um, He was intimately involved in the War Memorial, which wasn't in this real plan, but it, you know, it occurred across Van Ness Avenue and sort of expanded the plan. Uh, he was involved in the effort to build a federal office building. So when he left office, uh, there were eight buildings at Civic Center. Now, he left office at the beginning of the Depression, and his successor, Mayor Rossi, uh, certainly was enthusiastic about Civic Center. He tried to get the voters uh, to approve money to build a courthouse, but did not wasn't successful. Um, so that's the way it kind of looked uh, at, the, at the beginning of the, the 1940s and the and the Second World War. So we'd built this thing. Most people at that point understood what this was all about, but the war came. And after the war, you know, there was this sort of, oh, here, here's another um, example or another design of the, of the plaza. And you see the trees are on the outside, um, on the periphery. They're not in the middle. There was a, a big area in the middle for assembly. There were two water features. And I'll refer to that uh, when we get to the, the future. Um, and there's the auditorium and so forth. Yes. So after the war, we, the United States, you know, sort of entered into a kind of utopian thinking with modernist architects, Sir Gropius, uh, Mies van der Rohe, Le Cubusier, people like that. And um, the city came to grips as to what they wanted at Civic Center. And there was a need for lots more office space. There was a need for a courthouse. And so this is a uh, design that the planning department put together in 1950, which reflects the sort of modernist thinking. So you can see these big blocks of buildings. They had no recollection or interest in the 1912 plan. The, uh, the uniform cornice heights, um, you know, not to, we wouldn't necessarily say that they needed to use the same architecture, but they just sort of, you know, took it as it was and imposed a, a modernist view on it. Um, so there was this big complex down um, on Larkin with a skyscraper in the middle and various other things. Um, the city in the 1950s uh, was run by kind of tight-fisted people, and they weren't very imaginative. And um, there was this debate, ongoing debate, whether it should be a courthouse or not a courthouse. Um, the city hired um, Skidmore, Owens & Merrill and um, another architecture firm um, to advise them on what should be done. And they laid out the options and said, well, you could um, um, rework City Hall and make it a, a city office building. Um, you could uh, That would be the option where there would be a new courthouse. But, of course, City Hall wasn't a modern office building, so you needed to lower the ceilings and remove walls and, you know, put 
vinyl on the floor and so forth. I told one of the partners of Skidmore about that. He said, oh, I'll pay you anything to suppress that. I said, sorry, it's in the library. That's where I found it. Um, So they, the tourist industry wanted a new convention center, but the city fathers were not willing to spend that kind of money. So they built an exhibition hall under half the plaza, and that would then feed into the auditorium, which had in the 30s served many purposes as a concert hall and a, a, um, an exhibition hall and a, and a meeting hall. And then they built a, separately a garage on the other side. Um, you know, so those two buildings weren't built together. And they also, um, they were going to replace the plaza the way it was, but they, um, uh, the mayor at the time, Mayor Christopher, said he didn't like that and he wanted something different. So they went over to Berkeley and got a landscape architect and uh, created the 1960s scheme. And Mayor um, Christopher looked out his window and he didn't like that much either. And they said, well, you have to wait until the trees grow and you know, you spend, you're supposed to spend some money on sculptor and things. Uh, well, they didn't really get around to that. And then the Art Commission decided that it would hold an international competition for um, uh, redesign of Civic Center. And uh, they sent a guy around the world, and he talked to all sorts of people, and like, I don't know, seven or 800 applications were submitted. And they chose uh, a, te- a design uh, created by um, a Bulgarian couple who were living in Paris. They were refugees. And basically, they proposed uh, creating a set of pl- plates, 100 foot by 100 foot concrete plates, on top of each other with foliage growing on the sides uh, around um, the plaza. So I guess you'd walk through the middle, but you'd be looking at these sort of plates with ivy growing on them. And, of course, it would be difficult to have a big meeting or an assemblage there. Well, the mayor at the time, Mayor Shelley, said it looked like um, uh, the showroom of a linoleum store. And one of the art commissioners quit and said that San Francisco was run entirely by Philistines and no artist should ever uh, submit to any competition in San Francisco again. The Board of Supervisors got into this. They looked at it. They were asked to appropriate more money. They never did. And so we were sort of just left with this creature that was half-baked from the 60s. And... That leads us to um, one that leads us to the library where I got involved. Um, there was a group of ardent library fans, uh, women, who were determined to get a new library because the old one had reached capacity in 1944. And they, um, convinced, they went to Mayor Feinstein and said, we need to do this. It's going to cost $130 million dollars. Any of you remember Mayor Feinstein? She was rather tight-fisted and didn't just jump into things that cost a lot of money. And uh, so I went to her because I'd known her, and I said, Diane, don't look at this just as the library. Look at this as a chance to fix up Civic Center because we had this sort of tawdry um, plaza. The, many of the buildings had not been maintained well and so forth. And she bought into that in her usual deliberate manner. She spent, had her staff spend like a year and a half preparing a report, which was made available shortly after, or before she left office, which called for a new library, called for a new courthouse, suggested moving the Asian Art Museum into the old library, fixing up the area, etc. And uh, so the library was uh, proposed to the voters in 1989 with a bond issue, the supervisors were very anxious about a bond issue that cost more than $100 million. So although everybody knew that they might need more money, they came up with a bond issue for $105 million for the library. And we ended up with a library which certainly is well used. It may not, you know, some people think the external architecture isn't quite up to snuff, and um, I sort of love that school, but I also know that the extra 10 or 15 million that was, would have been needed to really make it great was not available. Um, so the library opened in um, 1996, and that was the first 
Well, that was the begin- that was the major block in Feinstein's plan. Um, they got the courthouse built before, and um, as you know, there's a courthouse on the corner of of McAllister and um, and Polk, and um, then, as you will find in the book, there was a huge controversy over building the Asian art, putting the art museum in the library. The preservationists were adamant, in my view, that you should restore the building to the way it was in 1917, then you could put those Ming vases on the old library shelves. Um, they brought a lawsuit and they lost. And But, you know, th- there was still a lot to do. And, of course, by the time of Mayor Agnos, we had homeless in the plaza. When Bill, Willie Brown became mayor, um, uh, he initially looked at the conditions, and um, he also got himself into, of course, we had the earthquake in 1989. All the buildings at Civic Center, none of them were, you know, were severely damaged, but all of them needed work because they wouldn't stand another um, earthquake. And so... Um, Work was um, done on all those buildings, and Willie Brown got involved in City Hall, and if you'll read in the book, you'll find out he got very grandiose, and he got himself into a political pickle, which affected his re- potentially could have affected his re-election. And so he stopped doing anything at Civic Center, and uh, even though there was a plan that money was spent for to fix up the public realm, he dropped it. And his successors, Mayor Newsom and Mayor Lee, had you know, there were budget problems, one thing or another, priorities, no particular support. Uh, it was only in, in 2014 that I succeeded in convincing Mayor Lee to ask the planning department to prepare a public realm plan. Perhaps I harassed him into doing it. Uh, but he did, and uh, five years has passed. There is now a plan published. Oh, I forgot to mention um, a miracle, if you will, happened. Um, a philanthropist named Helen Diller came by one day and looked at the little playgrounds that were in the plaza and uh, called up the park, rec and park director and said, you know, those are pretty tawdry. I would like to give money to build new ones. So uh, elaborate process was undertaken to do that, and they wanted state-of-the-art playgrounds. Um, the budget was originally $5 million, went to $10 million, not a problem. And then she and her family decided there should be a little cafe, um, the Byright Cafe. That was supposed to cost half a million, went up to a million two, wasn't a problem. So that sort of like manna from heaven brought change and activity um, to the area while we were waiting for other things uh, to happen. Um, in the interim, Mayor Lee had created a effort, um, which our friend Amy Cohen, who has left heads, um, to um, do temporary interim kind of things in the area, um, activities, um, more farmers' markets, uh, music, dance, and whatnot to to improve the area. But um, early a couple of months ago, the planning department published their final version of the for com- comment of the um, of the public realm plan, and I think it's brilliant. Um, it returns the the plaza with the trees on the periphery as they were removes those pollarded trees in the middle that get in the way every time you want to have a concert or an assemblage there. has a very interesting water feature, which is about a half-inch thick, and you can drain it in a hurry should you need a need that space for um, uh, an assemblage. It, um, there's one, in I think, in front of the Seattle City Hall like that. It um, changes Fulton Street from being a parking lot to a grassy area with, uh, and also artwork on either side. It takes UN Plaza. Um, it takes that enormous hole that's there where the BART, the entrance into BART, it's kind of like a cave and puts a building on top of it. It takes the uh, Halpern Fountain, which has never worked, um, and uh, it, rather than remove it, which is be controversial, they, they put... Um, they put soil and and plants in a good deal of it. So this is up for discussion. And here's a view of it from a, a drone, I suppose. Um, I think it's really good. And I've probably 
taken up too much time, but um, we still have a minute or two for questions. Just to remind our online and radio audiences that they are listening to James Haas speaking about the San Francisco Civic Center and how it was built, what the plans were. So, uh, time for questions. What, um, what do you hope readers take away from your book, having read it? That this, particularly people in the Bay Area, is one of the more significant pieces of planning and architecture in San Francisco and the Bay Area. It tends to be ignored. If you look at the stuff that the, uh, the San Francisco Travel puts out, you know, they have the Golden Gate Bridge and they have the Transamerica Tower and whatnot. Rarely do you ever see any of this. I want people to understand that this was built for a purpose, to build community, that uh, the city hall is not independent from everything else. Um, it all should be looked at as a, as a complex. And if you look around the country, there is nothing similar in any city. The only thing that is somewhat similar is the Federal Triangle in Washington. That's not a municipal building. But there is a connection because Arthur Brown, who did City Hall, the two veterans buildings, and the Federal Building, um, was one of the people who was involved in designing the Federal Triangle. When you're talking about the Exhibition Hall, that's what eventually became the the Billy Graham? Yes. It was known originally as the Exhibition Auditorium, then the Civic Auditorium. Uh, The the, um, PPIE company not only gave the building, but they gave the the city an 11,000-pipe organ. And in uh, the 20s, uh, that was kind of the place you went for music appreciation. The city organist was one of the highest-paid city officials at the time. And obviously, radio, television changed. And so by the 1960s, it was hardly ever used. And then the 89 earthquake, it was damaged. It was removed, repaired. Nobody figured out what to do with it. So it sits in the base in Brooks Hall, which is that exhibit hall that was built um, bef- next to the auditorium that is no longer function or is not used because we have Moscone. Yeah, uh, thank you. This is very interesting, even as, for somebody who grew up in in San Francisco. Um, a couple questions about City Hall, and then a question about the Civic Center as a whole. The first that I growing up, I learned that the City Hall was in, the dome at City, the City Hall was intentionally designed to be twelve inches taller than the dome at the Capitol. And so I wonder if that's, first of all, if that's true. And then the second question around City Hall is that you mentioned Willie Brown didn't do much there, but he led, I think, a $50 million restoration of City Hall while he was mayor. Well, I didn't get into that, but let me, um, first of all, answer your first question. Yeah. Um, the architects did not intentionally design that dome in, in different from anything else. Their model for the dome at City Hall is the dome at the L'Église des Invalides in Paris. This is a building from the time of Louis XIV. It was to be a, a home for injured soldiers. It has a grand church, which Napoleon is buried on the grand, ground floor. And, and the dome, of course, in Paris is more covered in gilt, and inside it has all these murals in it. But that is the model, and I should include a picture in that series because you can see it. But um, Arthur Brown, he, when he studied at the École, the, the, the Zambolide was about you know, a quarter mile away. So he probably saw it all the time. And that is the real story. It's, this whole Civic Center thing is imbued with French culture, and that's another thing that's important to know about it, whether it's Mrs. Hearst sending people to Paris, whether the architecture is... There is no such thing, if you will, as Beaux-Arts architecture. When you went to the Ecole of Beaux-Arts, you learned how to draw, and you could draw Greek, Roman, Gothic, Tudor, whatever. You could even grow, um, you know... Um, Art Deco kind of things. You you couldn't draw a modernist building because there's nothing to draw. Um, So the architecture at Civic Center is really French Baroque. And uh, now your second question, there's a lot in the book about Willie. He, um, and I'll have to be quick, um, before he was elected, uh, the, the money for City Hall 
um, there was enough money to do the structural work, but there had not been any money allocated to modernize the building, um, improve its you know, fire safety, remove the 30 or 50 years of, of cigar smoke and all that sort of stuff. I chaired a committee that got that bond issue passed the voters the same day that he was elected. He then, uh, as mayor, and he had worked on the state capitol in, in, in Sacramento, uh, immediately took an interest in what was going on. And uh, uh, several months after he was elected, he announced that he had a plan for City Hall which would remove most of the, of the um, city workers from City Hall. And uh, it would, City Hall would have the mayor, the board of supervisors, city attorney, but the rest of the building would be devoted to um, exhibitions, banquets. He, he's quoted as saying, and I have it in the book, cabinet secretary from Washington need a place on the West Coast to hold these major events. Well, the board of supervisors, who were friends and allies of him, were quite startled. And a period of time went, I mean, he literally wanted the the clerk and the weddings and the treasurer and everybody out. And he would have to then rent space for them in new places. Um, without, you can read in the book, but eventually, because the building work got so over expensive, the, um, the supervisors forced him into returning to the original plan with the treasurer and the clerk and the way it is now. Uh, I will say that, you know, the they did build a courthouse, so the courts on the third and fourth floor were going to leave anyway. Um, there was a great political to-do. Senator Quentin Kopp got into the picture, put a measure on the ballot. That affected Willie's um, campaign for re-election, blah, 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 and so forth and so on. Um, so I asked the question in the book, you know, did he add value? And you can come to your own conclusion. Um, he certainly spent a lot of time you know, worrying about how the contractor was doing and all that sort of stuff. But he started out with a plan that was dramatically different from the original intent of civic centers, which is a palatial buildings for ordinary people. He didn't want them in there. And if I could follow up, uh, I, on the civic center as a whole, how much of that did Arthur Brown and his firm design? Which, which were the buildings that they designed and which were built later? Well, his first uh, contract was only City Hall. And uh, <clears throat> the um, Howard and his colleagues designed the auditorium because the, um, fair, the PPIE company needed it open by the day the fair opened. And they needed, they needed to get – they couldn't have a competition. They had to and, – and you will find in the book there was a lot of architects – uh, at source points with each other during the, this whole time as to who got the contract and who didn't and whether it was fair or not. The, um, they had a competition for the library that also ended up being in a controversy. There were the, um, a man named George Kellum got that. Um, the state building was designed by a, another firm. Um, then um, the and you'll find in the book uh, the chapter on the war memorial. But basically, Arthur Brown was ended up being the architect for those two buildings, and so that's how they uh, they are twin buildings that sort of um, give you a sense of uh, the Place de la Concorde in Paris, um, and they are in the same French Baroque style as City Hall. And then um, the federal building um, also chose him to be the architect of that project. Um, there was, you know, some familiarity with various people and who knew who. And but uh, he designed that, and that opened in 1936. So he had those buildings. Arthur Brown was an extraordinary person, and there's a very good biography of him. He was the consulting architect for both UC Berkeley and Stanford in the 1930s. So um, the Hoover Tower is one of his projects. I, I think the Doe Library at Berkeley is one of his projects. Um, he did Coit Tower. I mean, he's an extraordinary person uh, who did all this great work. And as I said, there's a, a really good biography of him by a man named um, Jeff Tillman. Jim, you haven't mentioned the United Nations um, and how c coming to 
the dedication of the United Nations here at Civic Center and that, that adds to the history of it. Also, you know, the federal building you just mentioned, I've never even been in it. Uh, <laughs> what is that accessible to the public and what is in it now? And is it it's such a large building in the Civic Center, but I never see people even going in and out of it. Well, two questions. The, uh, the U.N. is mentioned in my book. Um, without going into all the details, uh, the mayor at the time, Mayor Lapham, got a, a telegram uh, from the State Department uh, saying that President Roosevelt had decided that the U.N. conference would happen in San Francisco in like a month, maybe six weeks. And, uh, you know, you had to get ready. <laughs> so where were they going to do it? Uh, they chose the veterans' buildings as the most suitable place for it. Uh, the, you know, the thing didn't last a month. It lasted like six months and all of that. Um, so that's in the book. And then um, your other question about the federal building. Um, you know, initially the federal building had everything in it that was um, for the federal government on the West Coast, but... Without, again, getting into all the details, the federal government was going to abandon it. Nancy Pelosi, they were going to sell it or lease it to, and there was actually a proposal to make it into a apartments. So I thought it would be great to live in the uh, on the fourth floor above where Mayor, uh, Admiral Nimitz had his um, offices. But Nancy Pelosi came in and said, that's a terrible idea. We already own this. We should make it um, back uh, as federal offices. And... Um, they came up with a plan for $130 million. Um, We managed to get it in the Obama uh, restoration, what's called ARA, the American Recovery Act. And uh, it is the headquarters on the west coast of the General Services Administration. And it um, has the same security that you find in any federal building. So although the restoration is really nice and there's a lovely sort of courtyard in the middle. Uh, unless you have business, you can't get in there. I've uh, orchestrated a couple of tours. Uh, you know, they're willing to do that, but ordinary people just can't go in, and it's really a lovely building. It, the corridors look a little like City Hall. I mean, it's sort of Arthur Brown again kind of thing. This, this plan that we have here, like, what is the status in terms of funding and implementation? <laughs> Good point. Um, <laughs> This plan um, was, as I said, re released about six months, six weeks ago. It's been shown to various commissions and the mayor. Um, there's a number of details that have to be uh, refined. Um, hopefully it will go to the planning commission for, you know, sort of like approval um, in September. Then we have environmental review. That will take a year, maybe a year and a half, more like two once the environmental re review is over, then we can adopt it as a formal city plan. Now, of course, there is no money for it at the moment. And um, in, it's in my view, uh, you know, you, you just can't go and say, well, we need $100 million to do this. It's going to have to be chopped up into parts. So um, maybe the plaza gets put in a in a new park bond. Maybe the fountain gets paid for by philanthropy. Maybe, uh, you know, BART and the work can, can be involved in redoing the BART station. It's going to have to be worked through in a variety of ways. But without a plan, you can't do anything. And I, want, I don't want to suggest that design will solve all the social problems in that area. But if you just have big, empty spaces... Um, you know, people are going to congregate there. Some of them are going to do things that make other people nervous, so those people disappear. You know, the only people who hang around are the people who are doing things that make people nervous. So design can, you know, break up big spaces, add uses, add functions, and, and make a big difference. And we have suffered from the lack of decent design there since 1960. Are you using carbon recapture to, for, for putting in all those trees? The um, One of the consultants, you know, the, there's a consultant team and there's a, a number of people who are worrying about re recycling water and all those kind of topics. Um, the, the thing about the, the trees in the plaza, they sit on top of the garage and the, in the exhibit hall, so the roots go down like three feet. 
So all you need to do is sort of cut a big circle around them and pull them up and put them somewhere else. It's not like they're, you know, regular trees where the roots go down 15, 20 feet. Is there a connection between the old post office at 7th and Mission, I think it's a courts building now, and the uh, Civic Center, whether chronologically or um, architecturally? That was under construction um, at the time of the 1906 earthquake. And um, it was damaged. And then the federal government um, started over again. Uh, So uh, work was... It was probably finished by 1912. Um, So there is no real connection. There was some talk um, when they were about where... When you built the Civic Center, there were some people who advocated uh, instead of going west going south and including, you know, down 7th Street and including that building in a civic center complex. But they were, you know, if there were 100 votes, that point of view got like five. Well, thank you very, very much. A lot of background, good history about about what's been going on here. So, uh, So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks a lot.